Hi, this is Isaac Arthur. Welcome to the show and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash Isaac Arthur and use my code Isaac Arthur. This episode is brought to you by Brilliant. Money makes the world turn round, so the saying goes, but how will the economy change as we move beyond this world? and perhaps even beyond our current understanding of money. So today we'll be looking at possible economies of the future, from the dystopian to the utopian, from ultra-scarcity to post-scarcity. We're principally going to be looking at how future developments might impact economic systems, so we'll try to look at everything we can think of, but obviously we'll never get through all of the options or be able to cover them all in deep detail. As a quick side note, channel regulars probably know I'm getting married this weekend, and I'll talk about that for a bit at the end of the episode, but I did just want to confirm that we are still having episodes during my honeymoon, but I'll be delayed responding to comments and the next couple episodes will air while Sarah and I are away on our honeymoon, so advance warning we might get some technical difficulties or delays with me out of the studio. Unsurprisingly, weddings tend to make one think of the future and economics, so it was an interesting time to tackle this topic. What does stuff like extended lifespans do to retirement, pensions, debt, and interest? What sort of effects on the medical industry is there if someone comes by and invents little medical nanobots that can fix almost anything? What does an automated manufacturing chain do besides make things cheaper and put folks out of work? What kind of money, if any, does an advanced civilization use? I figured we might as well start with this one. Some science fiction, like Star Trek, has a tendency to assume an ideal future economy is post-scarcity, and that it wouldn't need money. That might be so, but in my experience this generally just means a currency by some other name. I can't really see how you could have an economy that didn't have money of some sort, as the basic premise is that I want something, or to do something and need someone else to do it, or do it better or faster at least. Even if we assumed you had infinite resources and automation that could spin up any object on the spot in an instant, which probably can't be made, see the Santa Claus Machine episode for why, physical objects aren't the only commodities, and grow less so every day. Nor are we just talking about a book or computer program, which can be endlessly copied. If folks are all wealthy they might write or program for free, simply for the fun or prestige of it, which is arguably a commodity in itself. In a very advanced civilization, folks might not need to consult others for their skills, as some artificial intelligence might easily provide consultation and work on anything. However, you still have some things which are finite, bandwidth, radio frequencies, energy off the sun or reactor fuel, how much heat you can get rid of, and even how much matter you can import into an area without undergoing gravitational collapse, all represent finite things under known physics. Your total population, if growing, can always turn any finite supply, no matter how abundant and easily acquired, into a scarce circumstance if those resources aren't growing as fast as the population is. So a post-scarcity civilization can become a scarce one again, even if their tech has improved, simply because they decided they wanted more people. When it comes to clearly finite things like radio or sunlight, some personal group or whichever has control of those in some fashion and has to administer their use, and it's a bit hard to imagine how such exchanges of control would be conducted without some medium and method for conducting them, which essentially is then a currency or money. 
even if it is something like a set quota per person or trade on perceived use or need, there is an exchange, and those might be influenced by things like the prestige of the person or project involved, in which case you just get prestige as money. Indeed one might argue that money itself is really just a generic, mobile, and liquid abstraction of things like influence, respect, trust, reputation, and prestige to begin with. In a family or small tribe, you don't usually bother with currency or even a barter system, you need those when your civilization is big enough that not everyone can have great knowledge of each person they're dealing with. With those close to us, friends and family, we do still engage in exchange, but it's really as simple as this for that or quid pro quo, in the background of every exchange is that entire history of that relationship, in which exchanges happen constantly, every time you so much as pass the salt at the dinner table, and each exchange impacts all future or ongoing ones in rather non-precise ways. Two interesting notes on that though. First, it is conceivable a society with lots of mental augmentation capability might be able to so increase our capacity for tracking social interactions that our Dunbar's number for humans, the number of people you can have complicated relationships with at once, usually put as about 150 people, might skyrocket to a far higher number. Second, technology often offers surprising changes. For instance, we probably will live in a world, even in our lifetimes, in which pretty much every action you take is recorded, even if just by your own devices, and in which data is heavily analyzed by AI in the background. We've talked before about that making it very easy to help folks keep track of their keys or other possessions prone to getting lost, as well as figuring out all sorts of helpful health or behavioral patterns, but it could go a lot further than that and potentially track and catalog every interaction you had with someone else and credit you with some sort of social currency. Indeed that notion of social credit, along with general privacy concerns of constant monitoring and advanced analysis, are rather troubling to contemplate all on their own, as we looked at in our post-scarcity civilizations episode on privacy. For good or ill, we are likely to see at least some places opt to introduce this notion of a social currency in the future, and you can't really isolate commodities from the main market. So if you have a social currency you'd be able to buy it somehow with regular money, much as many online games have their own in-universe currency and items that folks often trade for real money. Another example might be appearance. Right now, nobody, no matter how egalitarian a society might wish to be with money, will have things like intelligence or appearance be uniform, and these can be advantageous and are at least partially inherited. However, we do need to consider that in the future, the equivalent of cosmetic surgery might be so easy and safe and extensive that you could get yourself basically whatever body type you wanted, even for things like height, gender, race, and so on. Such a civilization could opt to be more egalitarian by requiring everyone look alike, or simply be prone to detaching appearance from their thinking, as folks were prone to always looking like supermodel athletes and could change their appearance without much more difficulty than we change clothes or hair colors nowadays. Intelligence might be the same. I'm not a fan of the concept of IQ as I consider it rather oversimplified, nor of treating it like your IQ score was a direct analogy to some computer chip's processing power, but the analogy works for our purpose today. We have a bell curve distribution of intelligence normalized to 100, with outliers quite far from that and all sorts of subtypes of intelligence like memory or spatial imaging too. However, if you figured out the brain well enough, and genetics or cybernetics well enough, you could potentially just be giving everyone the same processor so that you had a very tight bell curve instead, 
everybody about the same intelligence, everybody's smarter than Einstein, and yet no Einsteins because everybody is about as smart as everyone else. Knowing people, I'm pretty sure that if everybody was a super genius walking around in the body of a bronze god, you'd still get folks driven to excel or rebel or establish a pecking order, not wanting to be the same as everyone else in everything, even if that same was so impressive they'd have been worshipped as a superman by prior generations. That implies a need for exchange or system of competition too, thus implying some sort of currency too and an economy, though it doesn't necessarily have to come from a government or have universal participation in the same system. Though I suppose we might also contemplate a civilization which viewed such urges as mental disorders subject to being fixed by advanced psychology and neurology. We can't ignore that sort of thing in economics either, most of our vices are relative things and as extreme cases we tend to view as bad. Greed for instance presumably derives from a basic survival instinct run a bit to excess, and a lot of the aspects of consumption that many folks frowned on might be something a society casually and effectively treated in children. Whether or not this is a good thing would obviously depend both on one's personal opinion and the method of treatment. This raises the notion of what we call a post-discontent society, a variation on a post-scarcity civilization, as well as how we define post-scarcity. Here on SFIA we usually opt to define a post-scarcity civilization as one in which the sorts of basic needs at the bottom of things like Maslow's hierarchy are just so easily obtained by virtually everyone that they don't produce any significant anxiety. For instance, most of us don't worry much where our next breath of air or sip of water will come from, or if we'll have a warm meal in a bed waiting for us tonight, and certainly less than our ancestors did. So we view it as a scarcity of anxiety essentially, rather than a scarcity of raw materials or energy specifically. By default, the higher you go on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, where those needs are satisfied easily, the more post-scarcity you are. As an example, in an ideal post-scarcity civilization, every last need on Maslow's hierarchy is filled, all the way up to stuff like self-actualization and a feeling of achievement. Needless to say, we assume it means access to things to fill those needs is generating the absence of anxiety, as opposed to simply feeding folks drugs or propaganda to suppress their worry over them, and we call that a post-discontent society, one where people simply don't worry about it rather than having no real cause to worry about it. A civilization whose psychologists are so good people don't get needless anxiety over phobias or self-esteem issues would presumably be a good thing, but being able to brainwash folks so they were happy living in a slum and working 16 hour days, 365 days a year, is presumably not, and this would be a post-discontent society rather than a post-scarcity one. This would also be an example of a civilization where most people didn't need money since you're essentially not letting them have personal goals they wish to achieve that might require something more than what they are allotted. Also needless to say, such things could come in many shades and degrees, and might be fairly mild dampening of human desires or the flat-out dystopian. See the post-scarcity civilization series for more discussion of this entire topic. But that's what a post-scarcity civilization is, and what we presumably like to be aiming for. What sort of things get us there? What technologies do we need? Well again it would come in many levels and varieties so it's not really a finish line you cross, not necessarily a permanent state, but we should start by acknowledging that we have a lot of folks who are essentially post-scarcity even today, and it's not entirely a new thing. A nobleman living in a past time rarely worried about his next meal, though often had to worry about many other things like rebellion or annexation, and of course most people did have to worry about their next meal. 
We have no shortage of our own problems nowadays, but most folks living in the wealthier nations obviously have a lot less basic survival concerns than our ancestors did. There are three things that would, either together or in tandem, make us at least hit the bottom of the post-scarcity pyramid. First is energy. It's our lifeblood and we have plenty but more would be good and more importantly, we don't have a stable and safe supply. Even if we ignore the ecological concerns, the possibility of running out of fossil fuels in decades or centuries prevents us from being post-scarcity. Now as best as we can tell, the resources of this universe are finite, and entropy puts a limit on anything being truly renewable, so even a civilization that has mastered fusion power or black holes can run out of energy, but these are on scales of timelines in the trillions of years or longer, and if we're talking about civilizations, it's generally pointless to use a definition for one that would require timelines longer than any existing civilization has ever lasted, let alone all of them or even the planet they've been on. It's also why we avoid using a scarcity of a specific resource when discussing post-scarcity here. In a finite universe, any commodity can become scarce, and indeed you can get bottlenecking of supply even in infinite systems. An infinite supply of water does a farm no good if it can only pump a few liters per minute to a location because of finite supply of plumbing equipment. We've spent a lot of time talking about all the cool options a vast new, cheap, and renewable power supply offers humanity in other episodes, everything from vast vertical farms or space farms to interstellar travel to new worlds, or even building your own worlds or megastructures, so we'll leave it at that for now. Our second option is simply better analysis. And as we discussed in our episode The Future of Garbage, civilizations tend to produce a lot of waste in their supply and utilization chains, and one who has gotten way better than us at that analysis, distribution and utilization problem, might well be post-scarcity even with just what we've got right now. Far better computing and artificial intelligence might be amazingly good at that sort of thing, and even for scarcity issues beyond the lowest tiers of survival needs. For instance, higher on Maslow's hierarchy are those things like self-esteem, social and romantic relationships, and so on, and a very good analysis might make it possible to match up folks with a job that they both loved and were good at and help them screen for friends and partners who were particularly well suited to them, and vice versa. Now we don't actually pick our relationships out of a hat at random, even friends you meet at work generally have more in common with you than most people picked at random. If you're a computer programmer who loves science fiction, odds are pretty good, compared to random, that your coworker shares those interests, and likely many other associated ones. A more remote form of work, where folks clock in by computer from home, might tend to interfere with that, but on the other hand, there is likely to be a lot higher concentration of folks who love their job at a given workplace, real or virtual, simply from better matching of people to jobs. That's an interesting consequence of remote work, a thing that is growing in our current economy and will probably grow much more. It's much easier to find a hundred people who absolutely excel at and love a specific job if you can screen an entire continent for them, not just your local town. This of course assumes there are any jobs in the future, but even if they aren't, at least as we understand a job nowadays, it will take a while to get from here to there. Our third option for post-scarcity is automation, robots and so on, and obviously these eliminate a lot of jobs too. This isn't new and in the past we've eliminated a job and produced new ones, causing disruption but still getting folks gainfully employed and at a higher average standard of living. There are concerns that trend might not continue, 
that you'd really only have jobs for a tiny few and those only most near everything, and you'd have to institute something along the lines of a UBI, Universal Basic Income. Now definitions vary on this but the usual notion is everyone receives some set amount of funds, income or stipend simply for existing or being a citizen, regardless of merit or standing, much as we generally would do for things like rights under the law, police and military protection, voting, access to libraries, and often things like educational health care. I've seen other versions which link it to merit too, like being able to get extra for community service or suspension for criminal conduct, but the most commonly referenced form at the moment is a stipend set to be roughly at what the minimum reasonable income for living is, decoupled from any behavior on the individual's part. The pros and cons of that, and ethics of it, are obviously debatable and depend on how you're doing it. For instance behavior or merit-based bonuses or penalties can have an appeal, but can also make the skin crawl at thinking about who decides what good and bad behavior is, or if someone is acting that way. But if instituted, it obviously greatly impacts the economy and in some not so obvious ways. Much like radical life extension, it might have some strange effects on interest rates and lending. Can people borrow against their UBI? Or can a creditor garnish a UBI income? Do folks opt for mortgages more often than renting homes, with a guaranteed basic income? Do they lease vehicles more or less than now, or other major purchases? In terms of housing, especially combined with remote work, might a set stipend encourage a lot of folks to move out of cities to where money tends to go further? We tend to assume, from this last century or so, that cities will just get bigger and more numerous, but they grew because they offered better pay, more variety of jobs, and easier access to a lot of commercial and recreational options. What happens when you can work from home, even on another continent, when you can get virtually anything delivered to your home rapidly via drone, and when many recreational options are digital. You can get similar effects from automated vehicles too. Not only would they tend to make your freight a lot cheaper, lowering the price of almost everything significantly, but it changed around your commute. Cars might tend to get remodeled to be more focused on a passenger trying to get work done or simply relaxing while en route. Long commutes might be less bothersome to folks, which might have the reverse effect of remote work which many people prefer simply because they don't have to do the long commute. It's a good reminder that seemingly inevitable consequences of one new technology can be impacted or even reversed by another technology. As an example, we mentioned energy abundance as one major economic impact path and a prerequisite for post-scarcity, but energy abundance that takes people off the grid varies a lot from one that requires everyone be linked together by wires. Folks sometimes suggest that energy might become the new currency of the future too, and I've also suggested that heat rather than energy might be the currency. This of course would be an example of a commodity currency, one in which a specific commodity, like gold or grain, was what people traded directly or traded tokens for. This is as opposed to a fiat currency. Fiat currency is where the medium of exchange is not a specific commodity or token for that, with some intrinsic value, but where the issuing entity, like a government, says the money has a value. We discuss the difference between commodity and fiat currency more in our cryptocurrency episode, and I generally tend to assume fiat currency will remain the norm in the future. However, other options for a commodity currency beyond energy or heat removal might be processing power, raw materials or reactor fuel, man hours or going back to using land as one. We've a set amount of land right now, but construction of space habitats like the O'Neill Cylinder might result in land, returning as an official or default commodity currency. 
The problem with a fiat currency is that it requires a very stable entity like a government to keep it stable, and an unstable currency is not desirable. That is one appeal of cryptocurrency since it is a bit less dependent on any given nation or group being stable. Outside of a solar system, or even a planet, it's harder to do a fiat currency simply due to light-like issues and all the complications attached. For instance if you're trading between solar systems, you might need to convert money not just over many light years but centuries of time elapsing from when you left to when you arrived. Aluminum used to be super expensive and is now quite cheap. Processing power as a commodity is only plausible over long times if you plateaued in your computing technology, and so on. Something like that makes a commodity currency, using heat or energy or gold for some examples, a little more attractive if you have a commodity that would have a reasonably stable value between times and places, and is reasonably mobile, and there aren't too many good candidates that meet all of the above. We may look at that more in the future if we choose to discuss interstellar trade, but as we saw in our episode on interplanetary trade, where light lag is still fairly minimal, banking is already problematic and might require going a bit vintage in some regards, to use modernized versions of banking techniques we had before we had radios or telephones. It does all leave the question of what most folks are spending most of their money on though. As an example, even though in the past most people grew their own food and bartered for goods, we can still say the supermajority of the economy was food as food production was the supermajority of jobs and labor. And nowadays that value is about 1.3% in the US, of people whose job is farmer or rancher, and even when you count related aspects, the food sector makes up only about 5% of the US GDP, not the well over 50% it has for the vast majority of human history. That will likely expand in an absolute sense, as folks desire more elaborate and divorce food or preparation and handling, but it's likely to decline proportionally as we grow in technology and industry. For that matter, a lot of things are likely to grow more durable. Planned obsolescence is a real thing, but mostly stuff doesn't last as long as it could because we expect it to be obsolete and people to want to upgrade or change, so spending an extra 25% manufacturing it to last twice as long isn't necessarily a good plan, even though it would seem a smart move. You just have no motive to buy a smartphone that can last 20 years but costs significantly more when you almost certainly want a newer, better model inside 5 years. But as we discussed recently in technological stagnation, tech could plateau, and probably will on many things, and production shifts to the more durable. Simultaneously a lot of new materials and manufacturing make things more durable than they used to be. If wealth grows until the average person's living standard is better than the typical millionaire today, much as it is now compared to a millionaire a hundred years ago in many relevant respects, what are folks buying with all that money? If food and most commercial goods are dirt cheap through automation, if houses are built to last from high-tech materials and maintenance technologies, if people never go to doctors except for weird cases because little nanobots constantly fix every little scrape or bit of DNA damage, what on earth do folks spend their money on? As we noted in discussion of transhumanism, a person with serious cybernetic and mental augmentation could potentially comfortably live in a dilapidated shack eating little dirt with easy free access to all of humanity's stored knowledge and entertainment in their head or the cloud. It's strange to think of it this way, but an economy is essentially run on a sense of purpose. Folks have personal goals and purposes, and they interact with others to fulfill those, that's essentially our economy. By default, that has usually been the default basic needs for survival, so to figure out what the economy of the future will be, we need to know what people want, 
what their day-to-day purposes and goals are, as combining that with the available technology tells us what folks will be making and buying. And of course while we don't know what on Earth they might want to buy a century from now, there is a good chance it won't be anything on Earth. Pursuing some of the options off our world or in virtual or digital existences, and we'll be exploring those more next month. We'll get to the schedule and announcements in just a moment, but first, one of the big things we can say for sure about the economy of the future is that we'll involve a lot more remote work and also remote learning, and of course a lot more computers, particularly AI using neural networks. Advanced new computers able to make predictions and decisions far better than classic approaches. If you're interested in learning more about neural networks, there's a great course for it over at Brilliant. Brilliant makes learning fun and easier and lets you do it from the comfort of your own home and at your own pace. Brilliant is an online learning community with over 60 interactive courses and mini quizzes and puzzles, plus fun daily challenges that help get the brain warmed up for the day. Those challenges provide a context and framework that you need to tackle so you learn the concepts by applying them, which is the best way to learn new concepts. Brilliant has brand new interactive content that makes solving puzzles and challenges even more fun and hands-on, plus their online community gives you places to discuss the material or ask questions, and their mobile apps offline feature lets you take courses even when you're not getting a good signal. If you'd like to learn more science, math, and computer science, go to Brilliant.org slash and sign up for free, and also the first 200 people that go to that link will get 20% off the annual premium subscription, so you can solve all the daily challenges in the archives and access dozens of problem solving courses. I probably don't need to tell anyone here that education and new methods and approaches are very important. Unsurprisingly it's an opinion I share with my future wife, Sarah Fowler, who serves on the Ohio Board of Education representing Northeast Ohio these last 8 years since she was first elected back when she was only 22, and as the first homeschooler ever elected to a state board of education. Needless to say, I'm exceedingly proud of her for that and many other accomplishments, and have counted her as a friend for over a decade now having met her not long after I got back from the war. If I've never mentioned before I was homeschooled myself, though only from age 10 to 16 when I started college. As I mentioned near the beginning of the episode, we are getting married this weekend and two big questions are will the show be on hiatus during my honeymoon and how to send a gift. While I'm a bit of a workaholic, obviously I won't be producing material during our honeymoon. However, the episodes are all ready to go and I'll just pop in on Thursday morning to release them, so yes we will be having our regular Thursday episode still, though not our usual end of the month livestream for April. As to anyone wanting to send a gift or grab a gift card, those are of course very welcome, and I'll include a link to the wedding registry in today's episode description for those so inclined, though please do ensure that you include a name and address so we can send you a thank you card. One sad note, due to the health crisis the International Space Development Conference scheduled for the end of May in Dallas has been cancelled, and I had been scheduled to go to that and give a talk on space colonization and receive the Pioneer Award, which is a very great honor, and was looking forward to meeting some of you in person since I so rarely do public talks and the last one was last year at the Carnegie Science Center. As an upside, that does mean we will be able to have our end of the month livestream in May, and we'll get to unveil the new studio for that, and with that ready we'll be able to start experimenting with some fun new upgrades and additions to the show for future episodes. Speaking of future episodes, today we were looking at future economies and one point we skipped over was how it's very locked into what humans desire. 
In an economy run by AI, even if they keep humans around as friends or pets, it's really they who are the consumers making decisions, but we also want to consider how humans spreading out to new worlds, or even those remaining here, might begin to diverge from modern humans rather noticeably, and we'll explore that next week in Genetic Divergence and Civilization. The week after that we'll be looking more at the cybernetic angles to humanity's future as we discuss the concept of life as a digital being. For alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to subscribe to the channel, and if you enjoyed this episode, hit the like button and share it with others. Until next time, thanks for watching and have a great week, I know I will.